This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from AllComic.com, episode 163. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lon Ramayasha. And today, we are doing another spotlight of the BL library of Futakia with its editor-in-chief, Edna Hamashiro. It's going to be a great time as we discuss three really interesting titles like Hard Biscuits, Yuki and Matsu, and While Being Seen Off by Campanella. It's three very different titles, but all of them really, really fun to read and fun to discuss about with Emma. So I think you're going to enjoy this episode as we celebrate the world of boys' love by showcasing the diversity of titles available in the Fudakia library. Yeah, this was uh this was a really fun episode and one that I was looking forward to doing for a while because uh you know, as listeners may know, I don't have a lot of experience in like BL manga. It's something that's really like outside of my wheelhouse. But I mean, you know, after doing this episode, like I'm pretty open to like reading more BL like this. I think uh our choices in what we wanted to read and talk about for this episode in particular turned out to be like uh a, like a good selection. Uh, I think we mentioned in the discussion, but it, it's a good selection of like very like varied titles like all of them are so different from each other and um you know just as someone who was like younger back in the day and had like preconceived notions of like what bl was and all that kind of stuff you know this was i I feel like i'm I'm not trying to like pat myself on the back i hope it doesn't come off like that but i i i am really happy that like i got to read these and i'm genuinely happy that i like gave bl a chance and i'm i'm hoping in the future we can do another one of these episodes and maybe talk about more bl titles like in and outside of futakia like there's so much we could talk about and i i definitely know a lot of other people who would love to talk about bl with us on the show as well so uh, stay stay tuned for a possible part two Absolutely. I think we will return to the series of covering titles of Futuki, and definitely there are tons of guests we know that would love to talk about it with us. And yeah, it's great that you were able to pop your BL cherry on the show, <laughs> and I thought that this were a great sampler, again, of the range that there is in BL. So for any listeners who may similarly be unaware of the different types of stories out there, I think these are good recommendations for you to check out, to get your feet wet. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, But I guess just before we move on to our discussion, uh, I I do want to plug at least two things kind of at the top of the show. Normally, I would save talking about my podcast for the end of the show, but I I do kind of want to talk about these at the top specifically because uh, I guess one of them is like a guest spot I did on a, a recent podcast here. Uh, that we've we've mentioned in our community shoutouts before, but I think it bears repeating since uh, I kind of hinted at it when we last talked about it. But uh, if you haven't listened to it and you're into iShield 21 in particular, you should really listen with Deal with the Devils, which is an iShield 21 podcast, uh, kind of going through the entire manga series volume by volume, uh, hosted by Derek and uh, James. Uh, Derek being uh, at Great Big Sword on Twitter, uh, also one of the hosts of. Uh, the Good Friends Anime Club, in which our friend Marion is also a host on that show too, and James also being the host of uh, the Kicking Stones podcast, which is a Dr. Stone podcast as well. And yeah, I mean, I, I was on their third episode of the show talking about Volume 3, 
Uh, it's a very long episode. It's three and a half hours. M- mostly because I was on. Like, I, I take all the blame for that. Um, <laughs> but it was a good episode. Uh, volume three of the series is probably my favorite out of the series so far. And we had a lot to talk about for that episode, just to keep it short. It was basically the volume of the manga that, like, got me into Ice Shield, like, full stop. So... I had a lot to talk about in particular, and it was just a fun time. Like, I, I hope that in the future I could be back on the show, uh, hopefully soon, uh, just whenever they need a guest. I'm always up for talking about iShield 21 until we inevitably get to our iShield 21 podcast that we will do on this show at some point. Uh, I, I have all the manga. We're going to do it. I just don't know when. We have to figure that out. But until that day comes, and if you want to hear me t- go on and on about iShield, uh, that's episode three of Deal with the Devils. Uh, we'll leave a link in the show notes for anyone who's interested. But uh, yeah, you should you should go listen to them. They're obviously a newer podcast, and if you're into iShield 21, uh, they could really use all the support they can get. Uh, and I guess something else I want to promote at the top of the show here, a show that I have been kind of doing for a while, but we've kind of started up a new project kind of within the show, is uh, just a Gintama podcast in particular, which I hope isn't too confusing because I used to host another Gintama podcast called Life Lessons. But this, just a Gintama podcast is basically the original Gintama podcast hosted by my friend Doctor from the Ask Backwards Anime Podcasting Network uh, and his friend Foxy as well. Um, I joined the show at some point and just kind of became like a third co-host and never left, basically. Um, but uh, right now, you know, if you're into Gintama and you've never listened to that podcast in particular, uh, we are doing kind of a Gintama rewatch, uh, starting from the very first episode and onwards, because, uh, you know, Doctor and Foxy in particular kind of go- have gone over, like, those parts of the show kind of in more broad terms, like, at the very beginning, uh, since they originally started with, like, the 2011 season. But, uh, you know, they've never really covered these episodes in, like, in detail or whatever, and that's kind of what we're doing now. So, if you're interested in a podcast talking about Gintama and you've never, like, listened to just a Gintama podcast before... Basically, this is a good place for new listeners to start. Uh, we've covered about four episodes of the show so far, and uh, we're, we're going to keep going. Uh, we also have a lot of cool guests line up. And so, yeah, uh, just go listen to that. I think that starts at like episode 154 of the podcast. I'm having a lot of fun doing that. It, it just feels nice to talk about Gintama again, because we haven't really done that as much since the series ended. And uh, yeah, it's just fun to talk about another show that I'm a huge fan of and I love. And if you also love Gintama, you should go listen to it. Again, we'll leave a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, But that's really about it for like my podcast plugs. I I just really wanted to, again, plug those at the top of the show because those were kind of new things I've been doing kind of like, you know, besides the show. And, you know, I want to give them like as much attention as possible for anyone who's interested in them. Uh, and I promise I won't plug any more of my shows until the end. But that's kind of about it for anything I wanted to talk about. And I guess we should just go on to our discussion. Yep, it's time to enter the world of BL once again. We're going to see what all the gay boys like, what all the gay guys want. In a variety of different ways in these different titles from Futikia. It's time once again to talk about some boys love manga, and boy oh boy did we love these manga. That's right, today we are doing a spotlight on some select titles from Futekia. We are talking about Hard Biscuits, and Yuki and Matsu, and While Being Seen Off by Campanella. 
Wearing an eclectic assortment of titles from across the history of Futakia. And we've brought on the editor-in-chief of Futakia herself to talk about them with us. Welcoming to the show once again, Emma Hanashiro. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for joining us once again to talk about some really interesting and cool BL titles. It was really fun to read these, and I think we're going to have a lot of fun talking about them. Yeah, I look forward to talking with, with both of you as well about these titles. And this is an interesting podcast because the way we did this selection of titles was that each of us chose a series that we wanted to discuss. So I chose Yuki and Matsu. And Emma chose Campanella, and Colton chose Hard Biscuits. And it worked out that these series not only are very different in terms of setting and tone, but also they are all different lengths. We have a one-shot in Hard Biscuits, a one-volume work in Campanella, and a three-volume work in Yuki and Matsu. So it really is a truly eclectic assortment, which makes this spotlight all the more diverse and interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm also really excited about this because uh, I, well, it's not the first BL manga we've talked about because we did talk about a uh, Pink Heart Jam, the first chapter of that a few episodes ago at this point. But um, I, th- these were all like my first full BL titles I've ever read. So this was really, this was really exciting. Yeah, you finally popped your BL cherry. Mine just popped long ago, but I'm glad to see you've caught up on this episode. <laughs> oh, what an odd three titles to start off your BL career. <laughs> Thinking about it. Not that it's a bad thing. They're just so... These are. I feel like these aren't the top three people would pick when when recommending like new people to BL. So it would be interesting to see what your insights are. Well, that's interesting because, I mean, we'll save Yuki and Matsu for last because there's so much to say. But the reason I chose Yuki and Matsu is because I have just heard so many good things about it from so many peers and friends. And, like, the reputation of Yuki and Matsu is just so great that, like, I just wanted to finally get around to reading it. Mm-hmm. I was telling Emma off mic that uh, if Lum didn't pick Yuki and Matsu, that probably would have been my pick. But, uh... I guess we can kind of use this to transition to Hard Biscuits a little bit, and I just want to say before we start that I, I picked Hard Biscuits in particular because I think it was one of the many things on Futakia as far as like its art style goes that really like stood out to me. Yeah, I really like it was on Midori's art style. It's interesting you chose Hard Biscuits because... Last year on our Futuki discussion, I mentioned really enjoying Mayro by the same artist. And I really do love the their art. Like, it is kind of a 90s-esque wispy style. It does remind me a lot, in a way, of a mix between Parodagaki and Shiromasa Mune. In fact, I would describe Mayro as a mix of Dorodoro V-Stars and Shiromasa Mune in terms of aesthetic and setting. And Hard Missy is the same way, I think. Like, it gave me a lot of similar art style vibes. That's interesting, because the whole time I was reading it, all all I could think was Togashi. Really? You know, that's also true. It definitely resembles kind of the looser style Togashi employs. And honestly, the main character, Watanabe, you know, with his shades and his face, he does resemble Leorio quite a bit. (laughs) I also got shorter from the Nanafish vibes, too, when I was looking at him. 
I guess if you if you're really a Hunter Hunter fan, you could view this as some sort of Leorio Kurapika AU of some sort. Oh my gosh, that is so perfect! Yeah, I mean Maki does resemble Kurapika a little bit. I mean, not that much, but they're blonde. And honestly, yes, the way that their hair is drawn, his hair is drawn, it's totally in the same type of style that Togashi would draw that kind of wavy hair. So yeah, like aesthetically, this does resemble Togashi's art, his looser style. Quite a bit. Honestly, this is kind of a level ES story, too, with kind of the way the characters interact and kind of some of the twists and turns in it. Mm-hmm. Like, seriously, that, that was literally all I could think about while I was reading this. And uh, and uh, just to kind of get into it a little bit, um, it's kind of funny. I, I had no idea about this going in. Uh, it's technically another racing manga, which is really weird considering we just covered Speed Racer. <laughs> yeah. Not... Too much, but uh, yeah, the protagonist is an ex-racer who is trying to kind of move on from the debt of his former partner. And yeah, there is a race in it where he kind of gets behind the wheel and shows off his skill once again, one last time. It was a very Racer X kind of story, almost. Indeed. Like, you could make the comparisons that Watanabe's speed and then his old partner was like Racer X, almost. So very close to him, the passed away and motivated him from there on out. Though unlike Speed, rather than being very successful in his career, after being motivated by the death of his former loved one, like Watanabe, starts out the story, gets kind of a down-on-his-luck loser guy, lost all his money on slots, gets his wallet stolen by kids, almost handed over to a gang member. And uh, so he's really, really kind of just barely scraping by in life. Like, a lot of bad stuff's happened to him all the time. It's a very compact story, though. Like, everything you just described, would you imagine this would all be in just one chapter? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's pretty efficiently paced. It's only about 36 pages, but we get a pretty complete story in it. And, you know, it's very surprising the economy of characters. Like, who would have thought those two kids who stole his wallet at the beginning would turn out to be the ones who would buy his car at the end? (laughs) So, very good use of characters there. And... Even though it is only a short length, it does manage to draw up a compelling theme and relationship between Watanabe and Makise. Both of these are characters who have had kind of like tragic deaths in their past that they kind of need to move on from. And through like fixing up this car together and making this deal to like go sell it off at this buyer, they do kind of finally are able to, like, move on from that. Like, symbolically, Watanabe selling off the car to belong to his former partner is him finally letting go of the past and now ready to embrace the future. And what Mikise agreeing to become Watanabe's partner in business at the end of the story is also kind of a sign of him finally being able to move on and form connections with other people after losing himself in his work for all so long up until this time. Yeah, I thought this one shot was pretty good. Um... I don't know if this is the mark of a good one shot or not, but honestly, it kind of left me wanting more like this. T- to me, this felt like a real kind of like proof of concept kind of thing. Like, th- I think this is the kind of thing that you could turn to a full series. Definitely. I think it works very well as a pilot chapter. And if you told me this was just the first chapter of an ongoing story, I totally believe it. I would love to see the relationship between these characters grow and expand upon. I think maybe... Like, I would hope that Watanabe would learn a little more control in his scent. I don't think it was great that he kind of kissed Mikisi out of the blue like that. But, you know, that's also where the relationship could grow. And I think they'd have a fun, like, rom-com dynamic. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I thought that was a little iffy at first, but overall, it it didn't bother me as much as I think it would have if it if it kept going. Yeah, it helps that this is a wackier story, you know, and the characters yeah, yeah. can kind of brush it off and th- things as they come, you know, it all slides off. Like, this, this has a lot of slapsticky shenanigans thing, and like, people can get like, a beat up and stuff, and you can kind of buy into it. Mm-hmm. I mean, o- overall, I, th- I thought I just I just thought it was an interesting story. Um, I mean, unfortunately, I, I don't feel like I have like a lot to say about it, but I-, I-, I did enjoy it. Yeah, I again, I really enjoy this artist's work. Like, I really enjoyed Mayro. So it was fun to check out another work of theirs. And that's basically two for three. I'll have to check out Bird and Horse at a later time, too. But yeah, like, I'm really looking forward to more works by this artist uh, whenever they pop up and poop to Kia. Actually, uh, this week, I don't know when this podcast is going to be released, but this week we're releasing a new, uh, shorter series, a three-chapter series called The Valley of Regrets by the same author. Oh, excellent! I'm really looking forward to checking that out. As a heads up, this title uh, takes place during World War II, so it talks a lot about sort of the interpersonal relationships between boy, like, men within this wartime Japan. So it's a lot, tonally, it's a lot different from all the other works, but she really delves into, like, as you see in, like, Mavo, um, and even in Burden Horse, like, you see how she, like, is very sensitive about, like, examining different social critiques, like, social issues within, like, a BL narrative. So, uh, yeah. that's something to look forward to. Interesting, yeah, I'm interested to read a darker work from theirs, but yeah, like, Mayro did have some really strong social commentary, and even Hard Biscuits does touch upon some, you know, pretty heavy themes at its core. So yeah, I'm definitely curious. I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm glad like Hard Biscuit made it on the list. Um, USLA Sensei is like one of my favorite artists. Um, she's she's a lot more uh, unorthodox compared to a lot of like other BL manga out there. So anytime this kind of manga is highlighted, I'm very thankful. mm Hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the title you just mentioned, uh, I think, should be out by the time this episode of the podcast is out. Yes, it should be out, yeah. So for subscribers who are interested in reading sort of a darker, more intense, I guess, title, um, keep your eyes out for that one. She was very enthusiastic um, about having her works on Fitekia, Um because we met at one of those, like, doujinshi, like, selling events. Like, uh, I think it was Komitia that we met um she was I, I talked to a lot of artists and some artists aren't uh very open or like uh aren't really interested in having their works translated in english there's a lot of different uh reasons why and mm-hmm, uh yeah. all, like yeah. there's also a lot of different resources for artists nowadays to choose which one but yosawa sensei was very open and really wanted to talk in depth like right away about the potential of having like english translations so in that regard very thankful <laughs> Yeah, that's excellent, and I'm glad that her works are now able to be read on Futihia and we can find, like, a great audience for them. Like, I'm definitely grateful to be able to experience her works because she's such an interesting artist and tells some really fun stories. In Japan, uh, she's currently um, being uh, published, like, under... Ah, sorry, I'm, like, conveying back into English. Um, like... Recently, she had a new volume, like a debut volume, just published in Japan. So it's really exciting, and really excited to see where this, like, the manga career will go. 
That's excellent. Is it a single volume work or is it a collection of her shorter stories? Uh, it's a single volume work. It's a new series. Um, let me. Do I have it on hand? It's. It's a lot. Uh, the cover looks like something like from Akira. Ooh. Oh. You know, I definitely get a sense that she was influenced by Akira because Makise's jacket, it resembles Tetsuo's jacket in Akira. Like, it, the way that there is like kind of a pill-like uh, illustration at the back of it and the color of it. Like, mm. I, I, you know, I definitely got that vibe. Yeah, uh, it's called uh, Senin Darin. Um, it was just published last month. Um it has a lot of, like, I'm just looking at the cover right now. I, I was spending this weekend reading it, but I hope maybe English readers can have a chance to read this manga someday. <laughs> I am hoping. Yeah, no, I, I definitely am open to reading more stuff from uh, from Iwasawa. I guess I didn't look very hard. I, I, didn't, I didn't know she had other stuff on Futakia. I'll definitely have to check that out. Yeah, let's see. The other one... Mayro and Bird and Horse are both on food here. Bird and Horse actually won an award. Um, who was it with? I can't remember the publisher now, but it was actually a one-shot, like, published with a publisher uh, at during a competition. Because there's a lot of uh, competitions for, like, aspiring mangaka, and this one won an award. Ooh, okay. No, interesting. We, we, we received special permission from the... Like, the... Uh, Iwasawa Sensei contacted the publisher asking for special permission to have this published in English because it's not actually available really in Japanese. Mm, like it's not available commercially? Yeah, it's not because it was published like one time. Like it's not like it wasn't published like in a in a book or anything and she hasn't it wasn't published in like as a doujinshi yet either. Oh, okay. That's interesting. I see. So you had to reach out to Iwasawa direct for the master but also work with this award to get kind of the usage rights to publish it, like the license to publish it. Yeah, I think it, was, it had been a, it had been like a lot of, it had been some time since it was published. So uh, Iwasawa Sensei just contacted the publisher asking, like, can we release it into English? And the got the okay to go ahead. So nice. Mm, that's pretty cool. You got an exclusive. Uh, yeah, I guess it is an exclusive. Yeah. So. But yeah, keep your eye out on Iwasawa Sensei's work. And always read the back notes. Um, in the back notes, it always says like what music was listened to while the work was being uh, written, or like what the inspiration was or anything, too. Mm, that's that's interesting. a fun detail. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I read like the afterword at the end of Hard Biscuits, and uh, I thought it was interesting that she was watching um, whatever the show was called. I forget off the top of my head. Wheelers and Dealers? I think that's what yeah, it's called. Yeah, Wheeler Dealers. Yeah, yeah. I have I have never even heard of the show until I, I read her afterward, honestly. Well, it's a British show. Yeah, but I, I think it, it... I don't know I don't know if it airs in America or not. It's a pretty long-running show. It's been around since 2003. And supposedly uh, it airs on Discovery Channel. So, yeah. Maybe you can check out some errands on Discovery if they still have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it seems like the kind of thing for people who know like a lot more about cars than uh than than I do at least, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the premise of the show is about the host repairing old enthusiast vehicles. So yeah, like in terms of premise, that's very similar to Hard Biscuits and kind of the note they leave off with 
the protagonist kind of deciding to partner up to basically become like kind of repairmen for like old cars and so restore them up. So yeah. But yeah, no, um, again, uh, I thought hard biscuits was very interesting and, uh, I, I, I would definitely recommend it for people who want to check it out and definitely recommend more of a uh, Iwasawa stuff. If you, uh, if, if you like hard biscuits, you know, she has more stuff on food to Kia. So just, just check her stuff out. Yeah. And I think I mentioned Miro quite a bit in the last episode, so maybe you could revisit that for a short discussion on that. Because, yeah, that was a really fun one. I don't want to give anything away, but honestly, I would I would not be opposed to another uh, sort of uh, BL grab back type of episode, honestly. so. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, there's so many great titles that I'm keen to check out that, yeah, there's a lot of potential for subsequent installments of this type of episode. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there's other BL publishers you could bring in, too, but if you ever want to do another uh, Tekia, uh deep dive, feel free to let me know. I'm sure this is mm-hmm. not the last time we'll talk about Futakia. <laughs> oh, not at all. Before we move on to Campanella, were there any other, like, localization insights you wanted to share with Hard Biscuits? Because I know you mentioned you had, like, a few stories about some of these. Uh, I think the next one will definitely be for Campanella. Uh, Campanella is a little bit more, uh, not complicated, but it has, there's a lot of, I think there's mm, a little bit of a cultural difference. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, especially with how much the series heavily kind of relies upon your knowledge of Night of the Galactic Railroad. And there's so many references to the story in the series. Like, a lot of it is kind of structured directly off of references. And so there's, like, moments where it's, like, clearly, you know, an event in a story is meant to mirror something in Galactic Railroad. And so I wouldn't be surprised if there's also, like, subtle dialogue. Not, Not just even, like, the explicit kind of references that are made to the story but like probably there are even subtle dialogue choices that were made that you highly have to pay attention to so i am curious about like the work that went into like trying to to be accurate to that Mm -hmm. um but before we move on any further actually emma this was your pick in particular um do you want to tell us just a little bit about what campanella is about so for campanella it's um how to start it? It's about, it's an unusual BL story in that maybe if you don't read the summary, you're not really quite sure where the protagonist, who the protagonist is going to end up with. Mm, yeah. That's yeah. starting off, just starting off without saying anything about the story. Um, going into like the more spoilerly uh, type of story, uh, a character named uh, Connell is a tailor, like a professional tailor, and he's been undergoing a lot of sort of depressive thinking after the end of his last relationship. And so just by accident, he encounters a high school student who stops him from potentially uh, making a bad decision. It, it's it's not clarified. Like it, We don't know if that, that decision was going to be made. But the student stops him, and they sort of develop an acquaintanceship that is really impactful on Connell's life and sort of reframing everything he thinks about like his relationships and sort of his past as well and there's also romance in there as well but that's the uh, that's not really non-spoiler i'm really doing a bad job in summarizing this story (laughs) no i i think you got the point across well enough i mean uh it is definitely a very like introspective i would say i would say this is 
pretty much a character study on Kano in particular. Yeah, it really is about him kind of grappling with his trust issues with other people and also his social anxieties, his inability to read social cures and understand what people are thinking, which makes him kind of like suspicious that people are talking behind his back and people hate him and stuff. And he thinks of himself as kind of a bad person. And he's like, he kind of fantasizes about being rescued, like how Campanella rescues Zanelli. Like he sees himself as kind of a bad person who wants to be rescued by a good person. So it's really about him being kind of really, you know, down of himself, introverted, but like slowly over the course of stories, he kind of opens up more to his boss who he has kind of a crush on and a genuine relationship there forms but because he still has those trust issues like there's some rockiness there until he finally kind of realizes that he shouldn't be so fatalist defeatist about his life and about what lies in store as the future and he should just kind of like live in the moment and embrace like this relationship that is waiting for him and like this person you know it's reaching out to him he has a connection with him like he should also like reach back and rather than kind of waiting to be saved by a good person like he should take that first step into like really making himself and his life better yeah i thought this i thought this one was pretty interesting and you know uh i, I guess just to speak personally here for a second you know the, the whole thing with him not being able to like read social cues and him just having a really hard time trying to like understand people and whatnot, you know, as someone who's on the spectrum, like I, that, that really resonated with me in particular. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I could definitely relate a lot with Kano's way of thinking. Cause I definitely had experience, uh, some traumatic experience where I was like kind of betrayed by people that I trusted and that created trust issues for me for the longest time where I was so like suspicious of what people thought of me and that caused me to self-isolate and made it hard for me to kind of open up and connect with other people. So his mindset I could really understand and empathize with in the story. I think he was a little too aggressive in his isolationism like there are people like old friends of his that are trying to reach out to him but he like blocks them and is just completely cutting himself off from other people so like that's a little extreme but i could definitely understand like where he's coming from and like why he's so distrustful and hesitant to like open himself up and let himself be vulnerable with other people lest he get hurt again mm-hmm I, I guess, I don't know if we want to get into this, but, like, uh, despite the references to Night on the Galactic Railroad and me not really getting them at all, honestly, I, I still thought this was a pretty good read. I, I, I still I still enjoyed it quite a lot, actually. Yeah, I understood the context of Night of the Galactic Railroad. Like, I have no first-hand exposure to story. Like, I have not read the original story or even seen the film adaptation. However, like, I know enough of its true osmosis to know the characters and the themes and what it's about. So I could definitely, like, map onto, okay, like, this is kind of the illusions and the context that this is drawing from and especially in the idea of like the train is a metaphor for life and people come and go off the train in and out of your life and then sometimes you know people come in and sit down next to you and they stay a while and they ride together with you on the journey not as life so a lot of those metaphors like i thought were pretty kind of clear and easy to get i think even if you don't have like a ton of context for the story like just some of that symbolism you know is kind of readily inferenceable yeah, I think even if uh, English readers aren't familiar with Night on the Galactic Railroad or have read it, it's definitely still a very accessible story. And also, 
I guess also good for like new BL readers for that matter. It's it's definitely not quite like the old school. Uh, what people imagine BL to be like. It's very like what you call the new the new style. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the notable things about that is that this is a work in which the characters do explicitly talk about being gay and talk about themselves as gay. Oftentimes in BL and Yuri's stories, like it's queer relationships without the characters especially coming out as queer. Like they kind of sidestep their identity and the issues that face them as queer people. However, this series directly engages with that. It definitely engages about someone identifying as gay, someone facing discrimination for being queer, like not just Kano being afraid of coming out and being discriminated against, but also explicitly with Kadama, who is an out queer person, who does have to deal with a lot of rejection from previous job interviews to wouldn't hire them, but then also, you know, has some issues kind of fitting in in their new workplace and yeah so it definitely directly engages with Kurandin in a way that I very much appreciated like especially with a conversation with Kano and his boss about like after they first hook up and the next morning they're talking about dating but then Kano's boss makes a comment like oh no I don't think of myself as gay and that kind of of course hurts Kano's feelings because you know again he's afraid of letting himself you know be open and vulnerable to someone but then being hurt again so the fact that his boss is not thinking himself as gay and not thinking of themselves like he's in a real relationship then you know that's very hurtful but like that's also something that his boss also has to come up to re- realize and reconcile that maybe like, you know he is queer himself like he hasn't thought of himself as that until this point but now that you know he and Kano have kind of formed this relationship like he has to really understand like like he has to reconsider like his sexuality and then also like what his relationship with Kano is so yeah I appreciate a lot of that I appreciate that it does touch upon real world realities that you know queer folks face so that does make the story extremely modern in a way I appreciate it I actually had a question for both of you like what did you think of the Kodama character I thought Kodama was, again, like, I really like the discussion and addressing, like, uh, you know, some of the struggles that an out queer person might face in public. Like, the conversations about, hey, this person had traumatic experience in men's bathrooms, so it's not comfortable there. And then, you know, he confesses to the boss at one point, and then people are, like, kind of laughing at his infections in a hurtful way. You know, I thought the character, like, was very interesting and you know, pretty compelling for kind of the fact that they were a secondary character in the story. But yeah, I liked them. I thought they were a good addition. And again, like it, it was a good contrast to have, you know, an out queer person like Kadama with, you know, someone who was still kind of closeted like Kano, or at least closeted in his workplace. Yeah, I guess it was interesting. That was actually one point where we contacted... It took a lot of work getting through to the artist to ask about uh, Kodama, actually. Mostly because I think some people who read this series might think Kodama is trans, actually. That, that's that's what I thought at first, too, yeah. Yeah, I was... they Because they were sidestepping, and there is a comment that Kanao's boss is like, you know, when I said that I couldn't... That they had to use the men's restroom, it was like telling a girl that they had to use the men's restroom. So it did seem that... M- like at some parts that Kodama might be trans mask coded but yeah I was not sure is Kodama meant to be trans mask or is he a cis gay person so we asked the artist um mostly because just even sort of the culture around queer I guess LGBTQ like 
awareness is a lot different, I think, than maybe compared to the United States at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, though there is more of a push for like education and more knowledge and acceptance. Um, but it's still uh, there's still like a lot of people who don't know how to talk about these issues or like even what the words are. So like you might have noticed like the boss, the owner says like um, someone here is LGBT. Yeah. Which I yeah. think to an English speaker that might sound odd, right? Yeah. Right. We don't say that in Japanese. That you say that quite often, like as like a set group, like that person is LGBT or something like that. Okay. Yeah, I've definitely seen that in other works where like rather than using say, oh that person is gay or queer, they address them as LGBT. So yeah, that was actually a conscious choice, like in the translation and like when we talked to the artist, because the artist wanted to convey how much the owner didn't understand mm. queer issues. Um, like this whole issue is to sort of like elevate how like, accentuate sort of the misunderstandings and the lack of like sort of low um, awareness of like sort of gay identities or queer identities was what the artist wanted to convey with Kodama. Like that particular like back and forth between I think it was Kano and the owner at that point. Like when he was telling uh, Kano about the new hire, um, he said like that person's LGBT. Da, 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 da. And so we talked to the artist, and the artist said, like, that's a choice to show how much the owner doesn't know about these issues. And then they, when we asked, like, would you say Kodama is trans? Um, the artist said, actually, Kodama is questioning, um, sort of not deciding between either. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, like, I appreciate that choice so much, because it definitely fits into the theme of the story of, like, trying to understand someone else and not understanding the way that can be hurtful. But, yeah, like, also for the reasons I mentioned before, like, you know, Kodama's a contrast to you know, like, yeah, it's so awesome, interesting. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I think, like, the artist said, like, if I were to put it into words, Kodama uh, would be questioning. So it's not even really, like, set in stone, in a mm-hmm. way. But, like, because I think, like, when it comes to English readers outside of Japan, they really sometimes want a much more precise understanding yeah. sometimes. But in this particular case, it was, it was, like, purposely a little vague. No, I definitely appreciate a character who is undecided about how they identify yet. Like, that is a very real thing. Like, a lot of people, you know, go through life and for a long time they're not sure like who they really are yet and they're still figuring things out so i appreciate a character who doesn't know quite how to self-identify yet but does know that they're queer yeah it's def it's definitely more realistic to have a character who doesn't know who they are yet i i think that's probably even more relatable for a lot of people yeah i, I really appreciate it like the artists that like, came back to us because sometimes artists are very busy and they don't always have time to respond to like questions of these like Komakai, like I had very detailed questions or anything like that, but like I tried to when we sent over the memo, like we tried to be very like detailed or just sort of like conscientious, I guess, because we know a lot of readers will probably like have a lot of thoughts about this particular character and like the representation of that character. So um, it was interesting actually. I asked I asked a couple coworkers, like Japanese coworkers, like what their thoughts were. Um, and they said that they, they didn't think the character was trans at all. Interesting. But when I asked, like, uh, Western-based readers who read the series, like the Japanese series, before the English came out, um, they thought uh, the character was trans. So it's interesting how people have different sort of backgrounds, I guess, to influence their response. Yeah. 
cultural context for interpreting like a character questioning gender. Yeah. That's very, very interesting. I could see why people would want an answer just because like, you know, people are always looking for that like representation or whatever. Yeah. And, and I think that's valid. But again, I also, I also, I also think yeah. yeah, it's valid for representation of someone who is in between and questioning themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Like this is kind of the same thing where like with Masumi and Blue's flag, like a lot of people were disappointed, like at the end of the story that she didn't end up with a woman, but like I appreciated that her arc in the story was her questioning her sexuality. So this is kind of reminiscent of that of like, you know, sometimes people want something explicit, like this person identifies as this, but I think it's still incredibly worthwhile to have like characters who are queer, but are questioning like their sexuality and like how they identify. Mm -hmm. I think both are valid, but I do agree that like, you know, not, not every story is going to end up with the character reaching their, I don't know what you would call it, like their, their happy ending where it's like, yep, I've totally figured out myself and I'm going to have no problems with this for the rest of my life. You know, and like not, not every story is going to end like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, life is long. And so, you know, how you think of yourself can change like, you know, over the course of time. So, like, oftentimes in these series, we're seeing a snapshot of a character's life, but, you know, oftentimes, I think it's worthwhile to leave the potential for, hey, how will they change going forward, up in the air, up for the readers to interpret? I think, like, yeah, this series in particular really is good, like, a snapshot, like, because we, we, we do detect, like, I feel like a lot of stories might focus, like, other BL stories might focus on, like, what Connell's relationship was prior to this. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like, this seems to be, a, this seems to have been a lot of, like, going on in his previous relationship. So I really I really like a story that happens like post something big, I guess. Like it's a very quiet story, but I think that snapshot effect of like this is just a snapshot of his life is really like special, I think. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely like a very trying time in his life and him trying to get used to, you know, hopefully trusting people and talking to people again and uh I will say at, at first, I, I wasn't sure how his relationship with that high schooler was going to go. Yeah, that is a real weak point of the series. I, I was kind of on edge a little bit for the whole thing, but I, I like how it turned out. I'm glad it didn't turn like creepy at all. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm glad they didn't end up together and the relationship never progressed into anything like romantic or God forbid sexual. But, like it's... Uh, you know, it's very uncomfortable when you have, like, an adult man who is, like, thinking and interested in, you know, a high school student. And, like, I know sometimes his thoughts are very predatory. Like, there's a moment where the high schooler's, like, crotch is in front of him and he's, like, fixated on that. And that's kind of uncomfortable, you know. So that was stuff that, you know, I would give context warnings for or like there is a little bit of teasing about a adult male character hooking up with a high school student that can be borderline uh questionable and comfortable but i think overall like because it never like progresses like it's an easier pill to swallow mm -hmm. i i thought that moment in particular was was more in and out for me like oh we kind of focused on a little bit but it didn't focus enough on it for uh, for, for just for speaking for me personally, I I didn't feel as creeped out as I thought I would, but like yeah, like the I, I do agree with you. It is kind of borderline, like the whole way through, kind of until the end. And I do like where where it kind of leads because like we do kind of have a moment where like 
you know, he's thinking to himself and thanking the high schooler uh, in his head for, you know, basically stopping him from like possibly committing suicide because not because he did it, he now has a chance to, you know, possibly have a relationship, you know, with the owner. And he's really thankful for that. And I actually thought that moment was probably the most poignant in the series. And he also lets go of him in his life, like at the end of the story, like they're having like a farewell conversation, basically. Like this person came into his life and, you know, yeah, much like uh, the relationship between Campanella and Giovanni, like they had a very like mutually uh, helpful relationship. But, you know, now their time, you know, interacting with each other is kind of past and, you know, like I know is like ready to move on in his life and move forward and have his boss next to him on that journey. See, I'm, I'm, I'm so jaded from meeting B all the time. Like it doesn't uh, like high school and like adult relationships appear so often in BL actually. <laughs> you're you're yeah. just kind of used to it. Uh, it's not that, like, I, it's just, it's just, it's just a common trope, I guess, but a common dynamic that appears in series. So, like, I think for, like, readers who are, like, very familiar with, like, Beale, I think they might be thrown off at first, thinking, like, oh, is this story, like, between this Taylor and this high schooler at first? Might be the first impression based off the first chapter. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, it's it's interesting hearing, like, other people's opinions about it, uh, since I I, I am of the the jaded end of things. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I I also just want to put out there, you know, like, Lum and I aren't really into those dynamics in particular, but, like, you know, if you're listening to this and you're into those, then we don't want to shame anybody who's into those, but at the same time, you know, that's those dynamics in particular just aren't what we into, but that doesn't mean we necessarily judge other people who are into it necessarily. So I just, I just want to put that disclaimer out there. Yeah. Even though, you know, I have, we have a strong stance against this sort of thing happening in real life. There can be valuable stories told about these relationships that can you know, touch, be compelling and touch upon interesting uh, themes and topics that are very worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. So, I'm sorry, I should have asked if there were any content warnings or anything. Oh, not at all. No, 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 no that's worries. okay. Like, it's still, like, the story itself, like, the thematically, like, the character arcs, like, were very strong and interesting. So I did enjoy it overall. It was just some of those moments where he's, like, really fixated on the high schooler that gave me pause. And I was very wary of <laughs> where it would lead. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, for me in particular, you know, uh, very little really kind of like Shakespeare to my core or whatever. So I'm it, it, just for the future. I'm I'm pretty much up for reading anything. I, I will say uh, c- c- uh, kind of off topic, but not really. Uh, I do appreciate the rating system on Futakia in terms of spiciness. Yeah, spicy level. Yeah. Honestly, I kind of thought um, because uh, Campanella is rated as, uh, uh, I don't know what you would call it, three spices. I guess. Yeah. Well, there is explicit sex between Kano and the boss, so that's why. Yeah, there's the whole shower scene. Maybe I'm just jaded, but honestly, I didn't think it was as spicy as it could have been. Oh. Yeah, I mean, if you read even more explicit stuff that is like hentai, (laughs) like borderline erotic (laughs) comics, you know, the stuff uh, here is going to still be deemed kind of by comparison, because you're not seeing, like, a ton of explicit genitals or penetration stuff, so. Like, like honestly, I thought, because um, I think Yuki and Matsu has the same rating, and I thought that was a, yeah. a little more explicit than this in particular. Yeah, I would agree. Like, in that series, you do see more explicit genitals, and some really detailed genitals, too. Mm-hmm. You, you see, you see 
penetration near the end at one <laughs> oh, point. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I I wasn't expecting, but I didn't really have like a problem with it. It was just, it was just, it was just kind of a surprise. Mikimatsu is quite a bit more uh, hardcore of, of these titles. Hard, hardcore is that is that the right term? Quite spicy. Yeah, mature. I would say I would say it's mature, and I mean that both in the adult content of their sex scenes, but also in terms of subject matter, because it definitely deals with some very heavy er teams uh, in a really interesting way too. I think it is among one of the more violent titles in the in the absolutely that as well. Like it's it is you know we draw comparisons to other kind of Edo era action manga like Vagabond and you know even Kenshin and yeah I would say that this is quite a violent title. Like in terms of like violence, yeah, there's a lot of beheadings going on. There's a lot of uh, violent stashes. Like oh my gosh, the way Hidebu draws like blood splatters is just so amazing and beautiful. And in terms of, like, incredible action scenes, like, just in that first chapter when Yuki beheads that guy harassing that woman, like, that's just some incredibly drawn paddle with the way the blood splatter intersects with his neck. And also the blade, the way that cuts across the panel. It's just so good. Such incredible action art. It's beautiful. Sorry, I don't mean to totally derail, but but before we totally move on to Yuki and Matsu, was, was there anything else we wanted to say about Campanella before we moved on? Yeah, I... I think we touched upon the court teens, but in terms of like the arc of, you know, realizing that you're, even if you like put out the pretense of being nice to someone, that doesn't mean like you're truly being kind or understanding them. I think the boss was a great encapsulation of that idea. Like to go back to the idea that the boss did not really understand Kodama, even though he wanted to be nice to them. Like I think a moment that really stood out to me was when, you know, he was talking with Kano and Kano asked him, hey, what do you think of LGBT people? And like he starts to go on this kind of speech about, you know, believing in equality, but it kind of dovetails into him talking to literally like the text reading yada yada complex sounding stuff. And to me that indicated like it was an interesting like gag, but also it indicated to me like the boss doesn't really know what he's talking about. Like, he's kind of parroting things that he may believe or he's heard, but he doesn't really understand what that means to actually genuinely believe that and how that translates to actually treating someone. And we see that later, that lack of of consideration when he's reacting to Kodama confessing to him and he's, like, kind of joking about it at the party and being very kind of dismissive of his feelings. So, yeah, I think that was a very interesting character and way to express that idea and team. And, you know, especially because of how that relates to Kano's arc of like him, like not being able to pick up on and understand how other people really thought of him and like read the cue, social cues of like, you know, in their past relationship, like the fact that his partner was getting tired of him and just also being inserted about just not being direct and communicating with people about what you really think, how you really feel. Like, I think, you know, the relationship between Kano and his boss, I think that character, like, it was a very interesting way to explore those ideas. So, yeah, again, I think that Campanella, like, it has some really strong themes. I think the, using the motif of Night on the Galactic Railroad to comment upon these ideas was very clever and very artfully done. And, yeah, I think it's a very compelling story. Like, I would recommend it even with some content warning for... Uh, some aspects of the relationship between Kano and the high schooler. 
Kiyoyama's art in particular somehow is even looser than uh, Iwasawa's, but it's obviously like a stylistic thing. And uh, but I, I thought it was interesting though. Interesting. I didn't think it was as loose, but yeah, I still liked the style of it. It did still have kind of a wistful quality. Mm-hmm. And I know we've been kind of like talking a lot, but uh, this was your pick in particular, and I just I just wanted to make sure we gave you time in case you wanted to like. If there was anything else you wanted to say or if you had any thoughts as to, like, why you picked this in particular, I'd be kind of interested. I mean, I why did I, I, I think I picked it because I, I relate to Kanoa a lot, just sort of getting lost in thoughts and being down. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. This is just actually just talking more broadly. Um, I don't know. I think working in the manga industry um, is difficult, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> so, so, so we've heard. Yeah, it's difficult for a lot of people, and I tend to get really down in my thoughts while, while working on a lot of titles. But I think, like, I feel, I do feel a lot of, like, Kano's thoughts of, like, oh, I wish, like, <laughs> to be saved sometimes. But I know, like, <laughs> it's not realistic in a way. But I, it, it, I did, we were working on this title during, like, a particularly dark time, and I, I found it, like, a really helpful title to read during that time. So I hope it could be... Like, maybe if someone hasn't heard of this manga yet, like, maybe it'd be helpful for them as well. I guess that it was more of a personal reason why I chose it. Um, no, I, I could see that. Yeah, definitely. Like, it has a very strong message, and I do think Kenno's mindset is super relevant. Like, I relate to it. And honestly, there are some real, very real thoughts that he has in, about, you know, his kind of, you know, depression, his social anxiety, and even his suicidal ideation that I definitely, definitely kind of related to. So yeah, it is a very compelling character uh, with a very, you know, uh, cathartic message that is very hopeful. Yeah. Again, not not to beat a dead horse on this too much, but again, as someone who is on the spectrum, I very much relate to those those feelings of frustration when it comes to try, trying to read people and trying to pick up on social cues and like, you know, uh, being called out on like totally missing certain cues and just and some days just being like man why is it so hard to understand people you know that's a thing i deal with sometimes so i i i felt sort of seen in, in this series honestly i'm glad to hear like i hope more people could also feel that way too um yeah i don't know i think it's easy i think we have a lot of titles in the library and sometimes easy to overwork like if you're in in BL, like there's a lot of other flashier looking titles out there. So, but I don't know if you're looking for something a little bit quiet but heartfelt. Here we go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, this this was definitely pretty good. Um, but yeah, I guess now we can move on to um pr- pr- probably probably my favorite title out of everything to be read here with Yuki and Matsu. Yeah, on the other end of the spectrum, like a title that has like a lot of rollicking action in it, but also like a lot of really sweet, sincere, like kind of emotional moments as well. Like it's a superbly drawn and written story. When, it, when we were looking at uh, this title, actually, when I was reading through it, I cried at my desk, like, in the office. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, just because yeah. the, yeah. the ending is so good. Oh. oh, my gosh. Yes, to talk about the ending, it's just so wonderful to see a story in which a queer couple, like, they lived their life together to a ripe old age, especially, you know, 
uh, said in that time period to, to see like you know a queer community at that time where being openly you know gay was you know risky and frowned upon like I, it just it was so heartwarming to see like a queer couple just thrive in their life and stay together like throughout it like it was just so that meant a lot to me like it was just so wonderful to see yeah i definitely went when I read that ending, <laughs> um, it was very sweet. But here, Lum, so this was this was your pick. So I want you to tell us just a little bit about what Yuki Amatsu is about, just for context. It is about an ex-yakuza named Yuki who is found with his neck slashed by a doctor named Shoan, who specializes in a lot of different medicines, but also in corpses. Like, he tests Yuki because he resurrects him and like he says hey you know I was counting on using your body and selling it off so now that you've come back to life you need to get me another body and then of course he has an excuse to you know have like a uh, love scene early on like say oh you know let me are you let me warm up your body so that happens before like he tasks him hey to pay me back you know you gotta kill the guy who did that to you and bring me his corpse this is actually a ploy though like sean is actually a lot kinder than he initially acted as toward yuki because what he wanted Yuki to do because he expected that once Yuki awoke he would go anyway to get revenge and kill the person who attacked him so he wanted him to bring back the corpse so they could burn the body and basically you know symbolically kind of free him from his past and like consequences of it because if they burn the body there'd be no evidence to trace you know the crime to him and he could move on with his life and upon Yuki kind of coming to that realization after like he like kind of uh killed a person and then he's like hey you know and he comes back and he like apologizes to the doctor for like you know not bringing back the corpse and the doctor kind of reveals oh you know i actually really wanted to help you out and that you know kind of appeals to yuki and endures him to him and so they kind of end up living together and you know they genuinely fall in love and the story from there is just a relationship developing as you, you both of them have baggage from their past. Like they both have abandonment issues from their parents and they both endured a lot of trauma. And Yuki has had a fraught relationship with his ex, who is also his mentor in the Yakuza. So they have a lot of kind of issues to work out in terms of like how they think of themselves, like kind of some of their pain. They work through that together. They help kind of make themselves feel emotionally whole and they generally just become like a happy couple who like love spending time together and like are truly committed to each other. And it's just a sweet story, like overall. Mm -hmm. This I, th so th this was the first thing I read out of everything, and, and oh. uh, boy, this, so for, for, for this being, like, the first BL title I've ever, like, actually finished to completion, this was, I'm, not, now I'm afraid whenever I go out to read more BL titles, this is gonna be, like, my standard, and nothing's gonna live up to this, at least subconsciously, um, which I know probably isn't fair, but... You know. Well, BL is kind of diverse. You know, it's kind of interesting that we kind of box in all stories that feature, you know, 
relationships between men together because there's a lot of different types of stories you can tell with you know romance between two men no yeah and so there's a lot of different types of BL and so that's what I appreciate about this kind of grab bag we did is that we had like very different type of stories that featured MLM relationships and Yuki and Matsu like shows that hey yeah you know such stories they can also be reminiscent they, they can just be like period action pieces that also you know have like a very compelling emotional element to them you know so there's a lot of diversity and variety but you know yeah I think Yuki and Matsu if you even took compared to other similar, again, like series in its vein, like Vagabond, Kenshin, it like stands on par with them in terms of not just the action, but kind of the teams it deals with. Because at the core of this character arc, like it's common in a lot of these types of stories, like Vagabond Kenshin, like Yuki is kind of having to deal with like this past and wanting to move on from it. Like he wants to escape from it, leave it behind him, and the past is coming back to haunt him. And also this choice of like having to kill is coming back to haunt him. But through his relationship with Sho, on he is able to finally divorce himself from that past from move on and leave that behind and embrace a happier future where he can be more true to himself and what he wants to be and so yeah it's just such a compelling character arc relationship and story Mm -hmm. no but if there's anything i'm learning from this episode of the podcast is that bl is way more diverse than i think i ever gave it credit for and i think that's (laughs) pretty amazing Yes, it's definitely something more people can realize. And, you know, I'm glad that Futikia, like, it has kind of that verse give titles for people to check out. Hey, there's a lot of different kinds of stories here for you to read. And there's something that's going to appeal to you, like, in terms of setting and con- and team and content. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were you saying, Emma? Oh, no, I'm just saying, like, I do think people have, like, a very, like, solid image of what BL is sometimes, but... There's quite a lot of BL out there that could sort of break apart whatever misconceptions you have. Like, even, even like, outside of Japan, there's just amazing BL out there. Like, yeah. I, even my own assumptions get torn apart every time. It's, <laughs> oh, sorry, I, I, I'm in the middle of, I'm in, like, a new swamp of sorts when it comes to fandom and BL now, so, <laughs> yeah. I, I can only imagine what it's like to trudge through that sometimes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, th- this, this is the best thing out of everything we've read. I'm willing to say like th- this was easily my favorite thing. Um, I think because, you know, I, I mentioned to these two off mic that like, uh, I think because of my, uh, b- because of my love for stuff like, you know, the, back in the day, anyway, Kenshin, uh, Gintama, uh, you know, Sengoku Pasara. Like, I, I, I love, I love stuff set in feudal Japan. That setting is always interesting to me. And I think you could tell some really interesting stories. Plus, I'm, I'm a bit of an, I'm, I, I'm a sucker for samurai stories. Like, I'm just going to put it out there. Um, so, th- so th- this was, this was easily up my alley. That was kind of, like, I already kind of had a foot in the door in terms of, like, how much I was going to enjoy this. And I, I mean, at the same time, I didn't think I was going to like it, like, this much. I mean, it, it's it's just such a great character story, uh, and a great story about the relationship between these two characters. And um, I mean, speaking of like characters who are trying to figure themselves out, like th- this 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 has that kind of thing in spades. Like, I really appreciate kind of the exploration of Yuki's character in particular as someone who uh, is really struggling with his identity, someone who. Uh, thought of themselves as either more feminine or masculine and realizing like, oh, both those are bullshit. Like, I'm just me. And I thought that was very powerful. 
Yeah, it's so interesting because of the environment Yuki was raised in. Like, he was raised as a male prostitute. And, you know, he had kind of this warped perception of what it meant to be a man, what it would be a woman. Which is, you know, very interesting, like, commentary that he saw, like, men as being those who, like, take and who, like, impose their power over other people. Whereas women were kind of people who, like, were, or they didn't have, like kind of agency or control of their lives. So he wanted to be more like a man. He wanted that control. He wanted to be someone, like in his own words, he said he wanted to be someone who could like spy, spend money on women. So like he like has that warped perception of that, but then he realizes that he's not really interested in relationships with women. And then he realizes that, you know, the masculine life that he idealized, that he thought the Yakuza symbolized, it wasn't for him. Like he has a much gentler soul than the life of a Yakuza, which is a docky dock world in which it's kill or be killed and people like are trying to undermine each other to get ahead and you kill children. And that's just not the life he wants to live. And so, in Shoan, he finds a different representation of masculinity and what it means to be a man. Because Shoan is incredibly compassionate, caring, and he's so gentle. He evokes a lot of qualities that you would think of as feminine because he's like a great cook and he's like a great doctor. So he has a very gentle touch. It's like he's a Shohan is like a great contrast to a different type of masculinity than the one that was exemplified by Sakichi and the Yakuza. And that allows Tatsu to kind of realize that this binary idea he had of like what men are like, what women are like, is not really as hard set in stone as he thought. And this idea of being a man that he was trying to live up to was something that is, that is not something that he needs to strive for. Like, despite, like, his past and how he had felt at the time, like, he can be confident in his own masculinity and how he expresses that. And that can be in the form of something compassionate and, like, and can be even adopting qualities that one would think of as feminine. So I really appreciate that dissection, that discussion of masculinity. And this also ties back into the climax, too, in which the village head is saying that he won't give, like, his daughter permission for his daughter to marry Kanji because Kanji isn't man enough because he won't be able to, like, support them and, like, do all these things to get land and whatever. And Shohan kind of chastises him and says hey what does that even mean to be man enough like he loves Okina with all his heart like isn't that enough he genuinely cares and loves her he's doing everything he can like that he is as that a man in that way like he still is a great person like no matter what ideal or arbitrary expectation that you set for him and that's like another core theme of the story really is like challenging and the societal expectations and these kind of taboos that are placed on relationships. Like the relationship between Sean and Yuki, you know, them being kind of having a, you know, gay relationship that they have to keep under wraps is like a forbidden love that is compared to that between Kanji and Okino. 
because you know Kanji is a tenant farmer, Okinu is like the village chief's daughter. Like they're from different class structures, so that is in as much way of forbidden love. And the story is just ultimately about love is love. Like no matter what these arbitrary social uh, dictations say, you know that love is genuine no matter what, and people should be free to express and embrace it and share it openly. Mm-hmm. But I guess, yeah, just kind of going back to uh, we were kind of talking about the art a little bit, man, like uh, Takahashi's art is uh, quite honestly, it's really spectacular. It is so beautiful. Definitely a style. I've, I've, I don't think it's really it's really unlike anything I've ever read. They have such interesting motifs that they employ. Like, they have, like, this great motif of falling snow, and that when that translates into uh, Joanne and Yuki's lovemaking scenes, I love how the falling snow becomes kind of warped, and it kind of ships in shape in a way that kind of is meant to be, of course, uh, kind of reminiscent of, like, fluid exchanges, and, like, that was so clever. I also really think the way that they draw, like, clouds is so interesting, because oftentimes in daylight scenes, like, the clouds are kind of drawn as, like, kind of these oval like filled in shades which is so different from how you would normally see clouds rendered it's kind of like kind of more wavy clear outlines or they'd have some shading in them but like in this series like i feel like you know often it is said that manga is an art of abstraction i think that like hidebu takeshi like they really are a master of using really interesting shapes and silhouette to communicate and evoke the image of things without having to explicitly render them in detail like there's just so much detail in the background like where it's just like black and white silhouettes that create just like this full form of what a background is so like a shape of trees or buildings and whatnot and like oh my god the way that they illustrate grass as well just so the way that they can create just like this like sweeping image of a field of grass which just these simple brushstrokes and not even just black on white but like just white on black panel also like again it's just so beautifully drawn uh, this series and yeah the blood splatters too like i mentioned before like i i love that they're kind of like these swirly splatters that this they look so artful on the page like i i just was so enamored with the interesting way and style they employ mm-hmm. i i genuinely never thought that bl manga could be like good action comics i never really expected that and i'm i'm so blown away yeah, I'm glad your misconception was challenged and now it's been overridden. <laughs> um, but uh, Emma, I feel like we're kind of going on and on. Was was there anything that you wanted to? Oh, I mean, I think I think I think it might be known from the names like Yuki. Like you were talking about how the snow f- falls and things like Yuki's name means snow, so that could also just be a visually echoing back their names. Like you see a lot of trees, and those are also pine trees, which is. Uh, Matsu, yeah. 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 And Matsu's name has a double meaning because his name is also like means waiting, which embodied like his mother wanting to wait for the man she loved when his father like moved away when like she was still pregnant with him to Edo to, you know, start up his shop. But yeah, like, and I also, when it, how it relates to him, it's like he, it seems, has been waiting his whole life to reconnect with family or to reconnect with someone in this state of limbo. Like, both Yuki. And Shoan, they feel like they're kind of in this limbo-ish state in their lives. But then, like, together in that state that they meet each other and they find their way. So I think poignantly, like, 
their names, the way, and that really describes the way the relationship with each other and the characters just so well. Yeah, it's it's such a masterful series. Like, I don't know how is is it popular amongst. This is like a a dumb question, Pastor. It's popular amongst English speakers. So this definitely has a reputation, a really great reputation among uh, BL readers. Like, I've known several like friends mutuals of mine who just really love this series and that's like it's that's why i've heard of it before and like why it had i knew it had such a great reputation so i do think like among people who are like very into bl this is a title that people know is like a extremely great series and very beloved my impression was always that uh, people knew this series because the the mangaka of golden Kamui recommended yuki amatsu <laughs> Mm, that that makes sense to me. Yeah, I definitely think that would draw a lot of people to it, too. And if you like Golden Conway, like, this is definitely, I think, up your alley. Because, you know, again, great action, great themes, a lot of homoerotic content. Like, it has all the works. Mm-hmm. Can I also just say that this this series is hot. Like, I thought yeah. this was <laughs> this was a really exciting read um, in more ways than one. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I love the lovemaking themes between Shoan and Yuki because they're just always so passionate and they are just so in love and that really comes across in their sex scenes. Like, it, it truly, like, feels like they are just having time in their lives. And they're like, I just appreciate that they are always so horny for each other. Like, you know, like, <laughs> Yuki's always, like, denting Shoan by not wearing underwear. It's just so cute <laughs> to see, like, a couple tease and uh, with each other like that. Like, they have such cute conversations. Uh, like, when they're talking about, oh, like, Shoan asks, like, hey, like, how does my dick, dick compare to your ex? And, like, they have teasing banter about that. It's just so cute. I Like, I love their relationships so much. And yeah, like those sex scenes are so artfully done. Like with the motif of like rolling waves, kind of like this ukiyo-esque aesthetic of waves, like to of course represent fluid exchange and the kind of the movement of their bodies. Like it's just so like the visual metaphors for their sex scenes are so beautiful too. Like I think one of my favorite moments in which that is employed is like after they've made love, like uh, near in a chapter near the end of the series, like they're kind of having a conversation about like how much. Uh, they like love each other and like there's like something that uh, Yuki says Joanne that just like kind of makes it blush and then we see like rolling waves over their house like it's just so uh, adorable mm-hmm. I guess in terms of like maybe any content warnings uh, I- I'd say the sex in this you know for anyone who's interested uh, we were kind of talking about it earlier I would equate this, I mean, up until one of the last pages kind of near the end, I would have been comfortable, like, equating this with, like, the Cinemax softcore porn type of stuff, where it's, like, very rarely, I think, do you see actual penetration, but, like, I mean, they're obviously having sex, and you see them have sex, but it's, to me, it wasn't as explicit as it could have been, again, until until that, that very last page of them making love kind of near the end, where, like, you you just you just see Shoan finish inside of him, and I was I was not really expecting that, but um, I mean I didn't really have like a problem with it or anything. It was just it was very surprising for 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 something that really wasn't like it like it wasn't as explicit as it could have been up until that point. 
Yeah, those genitalia are pretty detailedly drawn. Like, it's definitely a panel that, like, really surprised me with how detailed uh, the penis and while well, the people here was. Like, it was a moment, like, I, I think in Yuki's flashback where he's, like, giving a blowjob to someone. And, like, there's a text panel, uh, you know, kind of covering the moment of contact between Yuki's face and the tip of the penis. But, like, the yeah. shaft and the balls, the, the crotch area, it's just so really... Uh, detailed in how it's rendered so there's some moments like that where you know we do see like you know full frontal and some pretty detailed uh you know genitals but yeah like in terms of like even more explicit penetration like that is reserved for the end but yeah like this is definitely a little more hardcore in terms of like some of the sex than some other titles you'll read but yeah i mean you know, I guess it depends on, like, how much of this type of stuff you've seen, but it's nothing I haven't seen before, at least, in other titles I've read, so, like, I just appreciate just how artfully it was done, like, because, again, it's just really beautifully drawn. Yeah, it was it was tasteful nudity. <laughs> Takahashi-sensei is very good about how to artistically use the sensors, the sensors when it comes to genitalia. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting because like every once in a while you'll you'll see almost a full penis, but but other times like it'll do that thing that like uh, I, I've seen other like uh, erotic comics and doujinshi do where it's yeah, like yeah, white oh, out. Yeah, yeah. Um, Emma, I don't know if you would know this, but like, was it like that originally? Like, it's it's hard for me to tell when like because uh, I know censorship in Japan is very different than over here. So sometimes, I think as far as I know, for this particular title, the digital is the same as the print. There are occasions where the print um, is a little bit more... Uh, is a little bit more... Uh, sorry, I'm trying to like remember what the... I keep... Uh, what was the word? A little bit looser, I guess? Yeah, so sometimes between the digital and a print release of a particular BL title, the print will have lighter sen- like lighter senses on genitalia than the digital, for whatever reason. Okay. Um, but for, for this particular title, I don't believe there are any changes between the print and the digital. Um, and we are based in Japan, so we have to follow Japanese law. <laughs> Mm, okay. Yeah, I was I was wondering basically if the genitalia it was always like whited out or whatever. That was kind of the thing I was kind of thinking about. But uh, yeah, no. I mean, um, again, like I was kind of surprised how I got into the sex scenes a little bit. I was like, oh, this is this is kind of hot actually. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, we we could we could probably gush about this series all day. But like I. I legitimately really enjoyed this. Um, I think I gave it like an eight out of ten on Annie List or whatever because I, I just I liked it that much. Is is it eight out of ten? I I don't use Annie List that often. Is that is that a good rating? I mean, for me, I would say that's a pretty good rating. I, I kind of do a lot of my ratings based mostly on like how much I enjoy a thing rather than like being objective, which I know a lot of people might not agree with. But that's ratings are a very personal thing. So for me, I would say that's a pretty good score. Oh, thank you for putting a, a good score. <laughs> I, I'm sure. I'm sure Takahashi. Uh, I hope. Uh, wait, wait. Never mind. I can't announce anything yet, so you have to wait. Um, I think a couple more weeks or so. So, with regards to Takahashi Sensei, but. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm definitely excited to read more of her works. Like, you know, I think this is only one on Furukiya right now, but anything in the future, like, I'm gonna read that like immediately. 
The, we also, yeah. if you're interested in the thoughts behind Yukimatsu and sort of the life of a mangaka, um, Takashi Hiribu Sensei did a short interview that's also on a blog as well. Mm-hmm. If you're interested mm-hmm. in reading okay. that. It answers a lot of questions and also sort of explains the influences behind the artwork. Like, oh, uh, Takashi Sensei is really influenced by like older cult films and um, Tezuka. Mm, <laughs> yeah, I can see I can that. See that. Um, I think actually, what was it, a couple years ago, last year? Uh, Takashi Sensei was posting a lot of like fan art for Blackjack. <laughs> oh wow! Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So like, um, that that might explain a lot more about the sort of stylistic choices and sort of the narrative building within the manga. Because um, those are like, I believe like those are heavily like influential in terms of like the creation of like Yuki and Matsu and other uh, Takashi works as well. Yeah, artistically, I could definitely see how Tesca's experimentation with different techniques of representation, like visual ideas, would be an influence on her. Like, especially like Dororo, now I can really click together, like maybe some visual inspiration she could have drawn from in terms of like some of her artistic motifs. Yeah, I guess this is sort of a tonal shift, I guess, in terms of if you want a title also set in the Edo era, but sort of drastically different in a sense. There's also uh, Momon Manji as well. Um, though heavy, heavy, heavy like content warnings on that particular title. It's a lot heavier than Yuki and Matsu, and Yuki and Matsu is already pretty heavy. Mm-hmm. But if you're interested in another period piece, that's also within the particular library. Okay. Oh, I'm taking notes. Um, yeah, no, I mean, um, I guess in terms of like any other stray thoughts I have on Yuki Amatsu, I, I, like I said, we, we could just gush about this all day. Um, but I guess one thing that I thought was interesting about Takahashi's art was that I thought their character expressions were always interesting. Like, oh, yeah, we always get like a lot of close ups and reaction shots on on Yuki and Matsu in particular. And like th- their expressions were always interesting to me because like. I don't know how to describe them. They always looked like they were kind of like, uh, their faces were always like kind of scrunched up and almost kind of in pain. A Wincing. Bit. Yeah. Yeah. Wince, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, was, I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. Like Takashi was so good at expressions, like particularly in communicating emotions through eyes and like the exaggeration of like eyes, mouths to create like a sense of like, real pain expressions also like really tell a lot about how how a character is feeling thinking without having to put into words like i really think back to the moment where shohan is kind of you know he's you know treated his deadbeat dad and he's like you know about to depart and then he's like told by his foster brother that hey you know this guy he wants to thank you like he's going to be a grandpa soon he wants you to come see his child and like we see his like the pain face Shoan makes like kind of having to process like his complicated feelings towards the dad who abandoned him as a kid but has grown up to be kind of like this loving father now grandfather and, like, he just can't have that person in his life. And, like, it's just so much regret for something, like, he wishes he could have had. And then, like, you know, he's not going to have. He just has to depart. Like, yeah. And then he just runs right home back to Yuki and, you know, kind of embraces him and, like, tears up. Like, it's just, it's just so powerful. Like, another great moment is also, you know, uh, kind of relating to that, like, team of regret and of, like, kind of, Oh, yearning for something you know you couldn't 
have or a relationship you wish you could have had like you know with the story of when they adopted that kid whose father got kidnapped by like these uh bridge building like people and like you know the kid is reunited with his dad and like first the moment when the kid is reunited with his dad like the yuki's face like seeing them reunite like just like the wide eyes like the fact that he's kind of like stunned speechless like he he didn't think like something like this happened that a loving relationship between parents like that he's never witnessed that it just fakes him back but then also later you know after you know he like kind of driven off uh the people who have come to chase down the father and the father and son they've departed like he like kind of like breaking down uh when alone was showing and like saying that man i never i didn't think they were fathers like that in the world i think parents like that why couldn't i have something like that like just the his tearful crying expression there is just so devastating impactful too so like there's so many heavy emotions in the series i just love just how much of that fraught pain that the characters can feel is captured in their expressions, but not just pain, but joy, pleasure too. Like again, in their lovemaking scenes, like their feelings of ecstasy and their feeling of pleasure, you know, just being with each other. And also the moments where they're happy and infatuated each other. Like there's the moment, the expression that Yuki makes when he's like running home after the, after his job, you know, bodyguarding uh, Ocean is done. And it's like he, that, seeing the hit the relationship between ocean and like her lover like makes him realize how much he truly loves like shawan and like just kind of his like happy expression like running home because he wants to embrace shawan is just so good and also shawan has such amazing like kind of devastated faces when he thinks yuki's run off in that chapter too like it's just so great like how worn out he gets uh it's definitely like the kind of the jaded face that Yuki gets when he thinks that Shohan was cheating with him with uh, that one consort what that was kind of he was forced to like spend a night with by one of his clients like that also <laughs> those are also great like man her art or expressions are just so good they say just so much about the characters and like it really makes their emotions like truly come to life feel vivacious and something so tangible that like it just endears you all the more to the characters Oh, man. Um, I guess, Emma, is there anything else you want to say about Yuki and Matsu before we uh, head out here soon? Or Oh, I, I, I'm just amazed by by both of your commentaries. I'm like, wow, like, I, <laughs> wow, I don't, I don't think I have anything else to add. Just... <laughs> that, that's, that's fair. We, we, we probably covered most of everything. I, I'm much more just like, oh, it's, it's just a, sol- it's a solid story, like, just taps the taps the manga. It's a solid story. Right here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think this is easily like our biggest recommendation out of everything. I mean, obviously we recommend everything. I think, but I mean, if if you're gonna read anything on Futakia, like please please go read this. Yeah, like again, I think you can draw a lot of comparison to similar series that. So if you're a fan of stuff like Vagabond, Katana Kenshin, like again, Yuki's character arc very similar to the protagonist of those series. The series stack with really interesting themes of like exploring what it means to be a man, exploring the concept of masculinity, and exploring that in contrast to that of femininity and the way people self-identify. It also talks a lot about dealing with trauma and kind of forming relationships to help you navigate, cope, and heal from it. And it also discusses the idea of kind of, you know, being comfortable letting go of the past to like move forward in your life in the future. And 
in doing so, finding yourself try with the people you love in the future. So it has so many compelling themes, in addition to be just so beautifully drawn. And it's just such a great, compelling story. Highly recommended. I I mean, there's just so much more that we didn't talk about. Like, again, I, I really also appreciate it. Like, in this discussion of, like, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, this discussion of masculinity, like, having a trans character like Ocean be so wonderfully represented in this series was just so nice to see, like, you know, in the situation that they were in, like... Yuki found himself having a sense of dysphoria working as a male prostitute, but like Ocean, like found validation at being treated like a woman and like is able to find someone who like treats her the way she wants to be treated. And that makes her so happy. Like I just, you know, I also may be so happy to see like a really kindly and like thoughtfully crafted trans character in the story towards the end. And also it tied in with the themes of the story so well. So again, it's just so wonderfully cleverly written and so validating, you know, to see like a thriving queer relationship. Like again, the flashboard is just so great in the epilogue to see that they've lived to a ripe old age a happy couple. It's just it's so rare to see that in so many stories uh, just as any kind. So it's just so wonderful to see it here. It's just so meaningful to see, you know, elderly queer couple in this time period that it's set into. It's just so, so impactful. All right. Um, but I mean, I think we could probably start rounding off here. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Both of you for reading so deeply in these series. (laughs) I mean, no, thank you, Emma, for coming on to join us and talking with them and sharing your own recommendations with us. And I mean, this was just such a great conversation, such great titles, and we'd love to do it again sometime. There's so much more in the Futakia library to explore and gush about and talk about. Sure. I mean, I'd even be willing to talk about, like, people's thoughts on just BL in general, just... I feel like, especially in the English language releases of BL, there's been a lot more diversification in what's being published and what people are liking, I think, compared to what was published maybe even five years ago. So just talking about, like, even talking to people who are just new to BL, too, is always really nice to be able to do. Oh, absolutely. Like, that's definitely a conversation we'd love to have, which even the future as well. Like, yeah, there's just so many great things to talk about. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, even outside of the Futakia library, um, I could think of a good number of uh, of other people we could even have on the podcast who I know are very into BL and probably would uh, would love to talk about it on the show sometime. But I mean, oh, absolutely. But yeah, no, the, I mean, even if it's not Futakia, which you know, not saying we're not going to do another Futakia episode, but I, I, I would even be pretty open to, you know, doing more BL titles even outside the Futakia library. I'm sure we'll probably do that at some point. We certainly have plans for one other coming up soon, so you can look forward to that. I, I look forward you know, to seeing not... that episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say, um, but that, that's also not to say that we won't do Futakia titles again. We'll, we'll definitely come back to Futakia because uh, Futakia has a lot of great titles. And if you're not a subscriber to the service and you love BL, what are you doing? Like you should, you should subscribe right now. It's sort of like a, it's a very, I guess compared to regular taxes, it's very cheap. It's sort of like a BL tax in a way. <laughs> <laughs> Though it gives you, yeah, it's a lot cheaper than taxes, thinking about it. Not a good comparison. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, even more, no excuse. I mean, pay to support <laughs> what you love. I mean, six ninety nine for pretty much what you guys have on the service, I, I think I think it's a pretty good deal, honestly. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's 
compared to how much beer costs in Japan, it's definitely a, a steal. <laughs> there's very few uh, like BL focused like there's very like there's a handful of like manga subscription services, but just the added cost of localization as well, like being able to have a subscription is sort of like surprising. I, I think I, I'm saying that as someone who works on it. <laughs> But yeah, thank you again for having me. I'm sorry I didn't I didn't talk that much. I feel like I'm probably no, just okay. tired from the life. No, no. I mean, thank you for staying up late with us. Uh, <laughs> oh, about no, with don't us. worry. I, I just have insomnia. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, we. I think I think we and the listeners can tell that you you work very hard behind the scenes to make Futakia what it is, and we really appreciate your work. Oh, I mean, there's a lot of other people on the team who who work far harder than me, so I'm, oh, yeah, I'm no, thankful yeah. they're willing to to let me tag along with them. But I'll, I'll let them know too. I'm sure they appreciate it. Yeah, no, and I guess mm-hmm. um, I guess with all that, uh, Emma, I mean, I mean, obviously, please go subscribe to Futakia if you're interested in anything we talked about here, or if you're just interested in a good selection of BL titles, you know, just in general. I mean. Um, I, I know you're not really on Twitter as much these days, but um, is is there is there anything else that you want to like promote or plug before we uh, head on out? Um. Oh no, I I never thought about this. Uh, I mean, I guess Fatekia is the thing we're supposed to plug, but I'm also not on Twitter. I have nothing to promote except I hope everyone has a good time reading. <laughs> oh, that, that's totally fine. I mean, that that's that's really the main thing is you know just just subscribe to Futakia. It's I I mean it's it's definitely worth it and. You know, to, to to refrain from just saying that for another five ten minutes, uh, I think uh, we can just end this part of the show here by saying, yeah, w- once again, thank you, Emma, for coming on the show, and we'll we'll definitely be doing this again at some point. Oh, thank you. But I guess with that, Lum, I think we should head on out to the rest of the show. Yep, I think we should. Let's go. All right. Uh, we want to give a special thanks once again to Emma Hanashiro for coming on the show once again. We always love having her on, and I'm sure it won't be the last time we have her on. Um, and yeah, if, if we haven't already said it enough, uh, you should really subscribe to Futakia. Uh, they're not like paying us or anything. We just we just really love their service. And like, you know, if, if you're looking specifically for BL manga, they literally have like hundreds and hundreds of titles at this point. There's so much to choose from. I think it's uh, safe to assume, like, we've only, like, barely scratched the surface on what's on Futakia. Like, there's so much for everyone. I'm going to assume there's at least, like, one title that, like, you'll be interested in if you go and kind of, like, search through their catalog. It's really worthwhile. Uh, it's basically a monthly subscription, too, for $6.99 a month, I think. Um, you know, uh, you only have to pay that much a month to have access to so much that they have available. It's, like... I can't say it enough. It really is like a worthwhile service, and you should check it out if you're a BL manga fan. Um, but I think with all that out of the way, um, I think we should get into community shoutouts, Lum, if you want to go ahead and take it away. Indeed. I do have a few community shoutouts for this episode related to the subject of queer manga more generally, and in uh, translation as well, and then some other interesting things. First, I definitely want to spotlight but Wido's recent panel on Let's talk queer storytelling in manga and anime. This took a two-part look at the topic of queer manga. First, they discussed Dujinchi and the relationship of self-created works in telling queer stories and their relationship to reading those Dujinchis and their own understanding of their queer sexuality. 
And then in the second part of the discussion, they talk more generally about queer manga and then delineating like who it is for, who it is made by, and really the conversation invoked has of their conversation is focused around fandom, like who the fandom is, how they respond and interpret the works. And then, of course, in their discussion, it's very fun that it basically, like, dovetails into Sea Monster giving everyone a bunch of recommendations because they are very aware in the loop of queer and erotic comics. So, like, everyone's pointing out, like, oh, man, I wish there were more series like this. And Sea Monster's like, oh, well, have I got a comic for you. So that's very fun. It's a great panel of folks. We, of course, we got Kate Sanchez, editor-in-chief of But Why Don't We? also got Dynamic Dylan, a great BL-focused YouTuber, who is another one of my shout-outs. If you want a great channel for BL reviews and queer manga rules generally, check out Dylan's channel. He's a lot of fun. He's got a He's so charming, and yeah, he's currently doing like this BL readers tag, basically, where, you know, he's tagged other YouTubers in the manga tube space to kind of do basically a month-long kind of spotlight of BL tiles. So yeah, you know, definitely check out Dylan's channel for more great BL reviews. But also to go back to this But White Out panel and the other guests on there, we've of course got uh, guests on this show as well. Aisha, Mama Loves Manga, and then there was Chris, Women Chris, and then Monty, Free Monty, and of course Sea Monster. Yeah, it was just a great panel of folks to have a really fun, really great conversation on queer manga, on doujinshi, and then on fandom, and how we as a fandom, you know, respond to and interpret and run with the work. So I really, really enjoyed it. It's a long conversation over three hours, but it's worth every second of it. So definitely check that out. You can check out the VOD on their Twitch. As far as other online panels that I really enjoyed, I really like Parallel Worlds Translating Manga. This was a panel that was done by the Japan Foundation of Toronto, and it featured basically guests we featured on this show as far as translators go, Jenny McKeon, David Evelyn, Jocelyn Allen. They had a great conversation on the manga they've translated, on their starts as translators, on some of the common challenges they face as translators, some of the differences they've had in their experiences, their recommendations for the journey they took on, and how others who are interested in translating can learn and get their foot in the door. It was a great conversation conversation tackling all aspects of manga translation with some really awesome people who I love hearing talk on a stream together just about their experiences so definitely check that out it was a great listen moving on to more blog post pieces I want to shout out and this is moving a little bit away from Kurumaya but I thought it was very very interesting since we were talking about a great service in Futakia that has, you know, done a really great job in offering titles and content and, you know, being very clear and communicative with their fan base. Well, on the flip side of that, Callum May recently wrote on an overview of Crunchyroll's disastrous history with their Crunchyroll's Originals brand, basically breaking down 
the different categories of what has been labeled as a Crunchyroll original from their co-productions and how some of these co-productions are considered originals with them partnering with Japanese production companies, but then some of the ones that they co-produce are not considered Crunchyroll originals, and there's really no consistency about like what is an original for Crunchyroll when it comes to these co-productions. And also, it points out the disastrous nature of some of these, like X-Arm and Gibby 8, which is completely falls through the root, and Crunchyroll's got a bad efforts to handle the PR on that, and they're also the culpability in the poor production of that. But of course, they also talk about kind of the frustrating stuff going on with Crunchyroll Studios Burbank, and their botched attempt to promote iGuardian Spice, and unfair, like, basically holding it hostage for releasing until i guess the summer hopefully it'll come out but just for the longest time they just have not been communicated but when it's coming out and also like after their mistake in the marketing they have not tried to promote it again so it's a completely unfair situation and besides that we only have onyx equinox out which you know was very well received and has fans but like it there aren't like a ton of news and information on like when we're getting the rest of these Crunchyroll original shows from the Burbank studio, even though presumably more have been ordered and born in production. And also it points out very much that a kind of the unfortunate cowardice of Crunchyroll, like when it was leaked out from an animator who pitched to them that they were actively trying to shy away from pitches with diversity because of how they handled High Guardian Spice's marketing, and just that's a very bad look. Just <laughs> they are, man, they really dropped the ball on that on all levels. And then, of course, I mean, even more disastrous than that is what happened with Control Two in Japan, which apparently, seemingly, has been shuttered with just no information about it at all, and they're just not being open about like what happened to the Japan studios. So that's a whole mess. And it goes on from there to talk about the solo originals, co-productions they have, the co-productions with Webtoon, and of course their co-productions with Adult Swim, and then how like the the solo productions they may or may not continue. The Adult Swim productions those are up in the air because Warner Media is selling off Crunchyroll, but the shows Adult Swim is producing they'll probably still be able to produce without Crunchyroll. So it's an interesting thing but yeah like it, the basically the point of the piece is how Crunchyroll's originals brand is just a mess and they have done a bad job of like defining what it is a Crunchyroll original and promoting them and they have also done a very bad job behind the scenes of producing them and so it's all been kind of a mess and so a very blood frank article from Callum that I know he, like, joked about. I At least some people have joked about, oh, man, he's really burning his bridges in his rule with this one. But uh, I think it was definitely worth writing about of how, like, yeah, I mean, Crunchyroll has really dropped the ball with this original brand. And uh, they should think about how can we improve on how we promote and curate and cultivate these shows. But, yeah, it was a really great piece. On the subject of other blog posts now, though, I'm returning to the BL sphere. I really enjoy Jocelyn's latest review of Aoke Yasuko's Evening with Sukotaichi. Now, Aoke Yasuko was the creator of From Oroka with Love, which is what I know their work best by, and that's one of my favorite, one of my earliest uh, BL titles. 
And I really like Jocelyn kind of going into like one of their more underrated works, of course, a work that is unlicensed, and talk about the series that was still in person them, but was kind of like the big break for Aoke as a manga creator. And it's just like a fun BL shoujo title that is like a take on the Adam and Eve story. And then it goes in all sorts of crazy directions from there in modern day lot then and the the space time machine is literally called okama it's just unabashedly queer and silly in its absurd reinterpretations and appropriations of history with its crazy characters so i love reading about it. it made me really hungry and want more yasuko okay works because man i love Oroka. i wish it was still in print and this also sounds like a crazy fun time but yeah, I really enjoy reading about this. So definitely read this blog post from Jocelyn. Yeah, also maybe if you can read Japanese, check out this series. And if not, maybe hunt down uh, copies of Aroka and Love because I love that series. And uh, that's underrated because it's out of print nowadays. And then finally, my final recommendation I want to give for this time is Blue Flag's final volume recently came out and there have been some good pieces, you know, just being written up on the ending of the series and on people's thoughts in it. And in particular, you know, to go back to the wide I really like Lanisha's review of the final one, Blue Flag, and the reviews of all the ones of Flag, but I think they very accurately and very well put into words, like how impactful and how moving the final one of Blue Flag is. And then, of course, vocalizing, I think some of the common complaints people have had on the final show that I don't necessarily agree with, but I can definitely respect people's viewpoints. But, like, I really, really enjoyed a review and I enjoyed all our reviews of Blue Flag so definitely check those out and also check out the Did You Have To podcast uh, when Nation Kate did on Blue Flag because that was also a wonderful discussion of the series and so yeah I think that's a fitting place to end of like kind of uh, one another very popular queer title also you can categorize it as a BL title as well so yeah I those are my recommendations for this time and with those shout outs shouted out I guess we can head out into our own personal shout outs for where you can find us yeah and I guess uh Lum do you want to go ahead and go first you can find me at Lum Ramiyasha on Twitter at Lum Ramiyasha or other places like Animation Revelation and Analyst wherever there's a Lum Ramiyasha that's where you can find me you can also read my reviews on allashcover.com we got a lot of books coming in a lot of reviews going out, so look forward to more on there. That is also where you can find the side podcast, the other podcast I do in addition to the show, which includes my podcast, the show where we talk about anime movies, and hashtag Lum Squad, the podcast I do with my good friend Andrew A.C. Goshimura, where we explore the wonderful wacky world of Rukurashi Zero Seamstra. We've been catching up on this media's manga releases of the series, and we've been dipping our toes into the movies, starting with Zero Seamstra Only You, so that was a great conversation. I'm really excited about some of the plans we have for Lums Squad in the future, so look forward to more episodes of that. And if you like the art that I make and the art that I make for this show in terms of thumbnails and the animations illustrations I make in general, you can find those on my Instagram at said artworks. 
All right. But as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host and produce a few other podcasts on the side, as you could tell from uh, what I talked about at the top of the show as well. Uh, but you could generally find links to whatever I'm doing, guesting on, whatever, uh, over at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. I have a page there dedicated with links to whatever I'm doing and whatnot. You can find links to such shows such as uh, One Podcast Prevails, which is a podcast about Detective Conan slash Case Closed, uh, specifically the manga as is released by Viz Media that I talk about with my good friend Doctor, again, from the Ask Backwards Enemy Podcasting Network, as well as basically whatever else I do. I don't have to go over literally every podcast because I have a page dedicated to whatever podcast I'm doing. That's the whole point of the page. So again, that's at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Uh, but as for uh, Manga Mavericks and everything else, you can find every episode of Manga Mavericks over at uh, all-comic.com. That's where you can find every episode first, unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, where at the $2 tier in particular, uh, you will have access to select early editions of our podcast. Uh, basically, whenever we have an episode edited early before it's supposed to go up on our main feed, we'll always post it up on our Patreon first. Uh, just kind of, you know, depending on our schedules and whatnot. But yeah, that's really the best way you can listen to at least select episodes of our podcast before anyone else. Or, you know, if you want more like new content, uh, you could sign up for a $5 tier in particular, where uh, at the end of every month, we upload at least one new bonus podcast at the end of every month. For right now, our newest bonus podcast is our uh, is our discussion on the live action Speed Racer movie from 2008, directed by the Wachowski siblings. It's basically a companion to our uh, Speed Racer podcast that we did about the manga with our good friend Joey Weiser. And basically, if you want more Speed Racer talk, that's where you can find it. Uh, we also had our good friend uh, Sam Leach on from the One Piece podcast. And uh, it was my first time watching the movie, and spoiler alert, it's a good movie, and you should watch it. Um, so, not to give away our entire discussion too much, but y you should still listen to it if you're interested in it. I, I had a lot of fun uh, discussing the movie in particular. Hopefully, maybe down the line, we could do more podcasts on, like, some other live-action anime movie type things that I might be interested in watching that I've never seen. But uh, as for anything else coming up, you know, uh, we mentioned it a few episodes ago, but we have recorded a new bonus podcast coming out at the end of this month in June, uh, talking about my alcoholic escape from reality from Nagata Kabi, the newest book from Nagata Kabi with our, also our good friend, Erica Friedman, founder of Okazu and Yuri Scholar. And, uh, yeah, we had also had a, we also had a good time, you know, uh, talking about that book in particular. We always love talking about Nagata Kabi's works. Uh, and if you enjoyed our episode of my solo exchange diary, that was also originally from our Patreon, uh, you want to sign up and go listen to that when it's up again at the end of the month. That is what's coming up. And just a general, you know, on our $5 tier, we have so many like uh, different uh, bonus podcasts for you to listen to. We have we have about 30 to 40 hours worth of bonus content on that tier alone for you guys to listen to. Um, so yeah, if you're interested, that's at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Please support us there if you can. It really helps us kind of like, you know, keep everything running keeps the lights on, et cetera, et cetera. And we just, we just really appreciate your support just in general. Um, and I guess for everything else, you can follow us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks specifically, you want to follow us on Twitter at manga underscore Mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash mavericks where we upload different excerpts of the podcast 
and as well as some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Please subscribe to us. Uh, email us anything at manga mavericks at gmail.com. Um, you know, what did you think about this episode of the podcast? Just a general. Um, do you have any BL recommendations that you want us to read or talk about on the show in the future, maybe? Uh, you know, what are you reading right now? What do you want to hear us talk about on the podcast? You know, email us about anything involving manga or the podcast or just about whatever. We'll read them on the show. We love getting emails. So please send us an email once again over at manga mavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or basically wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on a lot of different platforms at this point, but especially on Apple Podcasts, it's really important to us that you uh, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps the visibility of our show, helps us get out there more listeners. And just in general, we love the feedback that you uh, that you guys leave us. Uh, we really take all of it into consideration as far as like trying to make the show as good as it can be. But yeah, that's going to be about it for this episode. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the Manga Mavericks podcast on allcomic.com. This has been episode 163, and we will see you guys next time for episode 164. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.